0: is Museum People, a podcast that celebrates individuals connected with the museum field by highlighting their work, passions, opinions, and personalities. In each episode, you'll hear stories and viewpoints from a variety of museum people, unsung workers to executive directors, volunteers to trustees, as they help change the world one visitor at a time. And now, the hosts of Museum People, Dan Yeager and Marika Van Dam.
1: Welcome, museum people. Thank you again for joining us.
2: Here we are in the hot summertime.
1: I love it. It's the best. New England in the summer. Why would you ever leave? This is why we live here.
2: Oh, man. Yeah. I pity our cousins down south, the southeastern folks, the Midwestern. I grew up in Mm. St. Louis, so I know what it's all about. You
1: know, hot summer.
2: People, yeah, they retreat.
1: Have you escaped? To any museums this summer so far?
2: I've been in a lot of museums. Uh, typical though to my job, it's been business related for the most part. So I'm in the museum, and I rarely get to see the artwork. Uh, but mm. I don't. I don't complain really. Mm. I've been to some really cool places though. It's part of our leadership workshops, which, uh, as most people know, you've been to yeah. to uh, to one. But I had uh, some beautiful. Experiences up in Vermont and uh, Castle in the Clouds in Moultonboro, New Hampshire. Wow, well, what a place that beautiful. is. I had never been, I'd always wanted to go. <sighs> it's this um, unbelievable 1915 historic mansion at the top of a mountain overlooking Lake Winnipesaukee. And how fortunate am I to be able to host a workshop like that? People were looking at the view. Nice. <laughs> and of course, we did the same thing at the JFK where we had the ocean mm-hmm, view and. Mm-hmm. <laughs> People did sort of pay attention. We paid attention. Yeah.
3: No, it was, it was lovely. Cool.
1: <laughs> I've been to a number of beautiful places that I, some I've been to, some I haven't been to this summer. I went to South Dakota, where my husband is from, and went to a couple museums out there. And what's great about being out in those places is it's, um, you often get the museum to yourself. Hmm. And it's so lovely to experience that without having to dodge people when you're looking at a label. And yeah. it's really enjoyable. And you can take all the, you know funny pictures that you want because no one's judging you um i was also recently in chicago went to the art institute and that was really crowded
2: great place um
1: also it was not freezing in there so thank you friends for (laughs) because you go outside and you're wearing shorts and a t-shirt and you go inside and you're freezing um that wasn't the case there it was busy um i also went to the chicago history museum which was um you know it was filled with kids yeah and good for them they get to go on history camp which i appreciate but um i had to dodge them in and out of galleries Mm. but That's okay It was also freezing in there Um, Yeah And I um, Went to one of my Favorite places Here in Massachusetts Hancock Shaker Village
2: Oh I've never been Oh Yeah
1: Hancock Shaker Village is, Is just like A gorgeous Oasis Of peace And calm And I love it there It's it's so wonderful. You just you step onto the property. It's such a glorious place. It's so calm, and there are animals and the wildflower garden. You can just sit wherever you want and just lie in the grass and look at these gorgeous, you know, multicolored buildings. You know, a yellow one, a red one, just against the blue sky, and it's it's gorgeous.
2: Oh hey, one thing I wanted to talk with you about is pokemon go oh. so it's been released now july 6th we're a week and a half into it it is now the big phenomenon is the cambridge historical society a pokey stop no oh
1: i mean i don't know maybe it is nobody's been hanging out there <laughs> i haven't seen anyone outside and i myself have not been involved in it mm. so i don't know
2: were you aware that it was going to happen no Right. It seems to be no. It seems to be one of those things that I first heard about it last week when my daughter came home from work and started playing, and it turns out that down the street from us there are two pokey stops, and uh, up the street a little bit is this old fish house in Swampscott. It's Hmm. this this uh, historic structure, and uh, she's holding the phone off of our deck, showing us the the fish house, and it's got this big. Uh, icon over it. It turns out it's a pokey gym. But it's interesting because they've used the database for historic markers. And that's what they're using to get people to cluster around and collect their pokey bits or whatever they're called. And um, it's the synergy with history, especially, that it fascinates me. And are we prepared to do something about it. You mean
1: capitalize on it? I think there's a few things, right? What what I just heard you say was how historic properties and buildings are part of our infrastructure and our life, and we just take them for granted. And that's unfortunate. And hopefully this is a way for people to see and learn about historic places. That's important. Um, But also, how do you capitalize on something like this? You
2: know, we've got sort of a varied response. On the one hand, there are many museums that are trying to Take advantage of this very quickly, not having any prior knowledge, but going on social media and advertising we're pokey stops and stop by. As a matter of fact, churches are now doing this too. They're pokey stops and they're trying to get people into church. Interesting, you know? Yeah. That's what it takes.
1: What would Jesus do? But
2: yeah, um, there are a number of museums, sites of conscience in particular, that are objecting to having uh, these uh, gamers coming to, for example, Arlington Cemetery, the Holocaust Museum, the 9-11 Memorial. These are Mm. all listed, you know, what a blunder, as pokey stops. And so you've got people doing that. So I think they're working to try to get the software fixed there. And I think the whole most of us are looking like, huh, what is this? What do we do? And that time will tell. You don't know whether it's going to be a flash in the pan, a fad, because the plus side is you're getting people up and out of there off their couches and whatever but it being summertime what happens in the fall and winter are they going to be wandering around quite in the same droves i don't know yeah. um, we'll see what uh,
1: happens by the time this episode airs
2: yeah yeah Marika, I'm very interested to hear about Rich Sheridan.
1: Some of the feedback that we've had about museum people is, you know, people in the museum are great, but why not talk to people who have had their lives transformed because of museums? So these are people that don't work in museums um, but recognize their importance in their own daily lives and their their work experience, et cetera. Um, So I did an interview with someone I knew who did... have a transformative experience because of a museum. So Rich Sheridan is is a guy that I met when I lived out in Michigan. Um, He had recently written a book called Joy Inc. And uh, he was wonderful.
3: When you grow up in southeast Michigan, as I did, uh, pretty much every kid, every summer, goes to a place that Henry Ford built called Greenfield Village, which is a historical park. Uh, Henry Ford had this idea that a lot of the artifacts of some of the greatest inventors that the country has ever seen were about to be lost for all time. And so he began collecting these buildings, literally, and transporting them by rail to Dearborn, Michigan, and building this historical park whose uh, original name, still in fact the legal name of this park, is the Edison Institute. And in fact, uh, the Menlo Park, New Jersey lab of Thomas Edison was the first building that was brought to this park. And it's kind of a fun story because Henry Ford and Thomas Edison were very good friends. And Ford knew that the building that where the light bulb had been created, the phonograph had been conceived, and a lot of other just inventions, quite frankly, that still to this day have impacted our lives. Uh, That building was about to be lost. It had been abandoned by Edison as he moved on to West Orange, New Jersey, and it was in disrepair and probably on the verge of being lost for all time. So Henry Ford went to his friend Tom Edison and said, hey, I'm going to move this to Dearborn, Michigan. Interesting little side story Edison told Ford, over my dead body, that building is to remain on New Jersey soil. And Henry Ford did as his friend, as his friend asked and scooped the dirt up from under the building and moved it to Dearborn as well. So I visited that lab when I was a kid. I'll bet the first time I was there, I was probably seven or eight years old. And quite frankly, it gave me goosebumps. Um, I, probably had no idea what had actually happened in that room, but it was as if I could still feel the human energy of uh, that place. Uh, I could probably still, maybe with the the guides who were there telling us what had happened there, I still had this sense both of history, but also of the accomplishment of doing something huge for the world. And Uh, It's amazing how much that feeling still resonates with me today. And as I'm sure we'll discover in our conversation here, uh, this connects uh, directly to what I'm doing today in my life professionally.
1: When you visit museums today, do you still have that memory, that emotion that you had when you were a kid?
3: I I do. I, I still get goosebumps when I go into those kind of places because, uh, you know, I think of what we try and accomplish today and all the tools we have. And quite frankly, I'm going to just say how easy it is today to do things. If you need to do some research, you go to Google. If you uh, need to um, uh, buy some electronics, you go online and order it from Amazon. But back in those days, they had to start almost everything from scratch. And to me, I want to know, how did they do that? What what were the essential ingredients of the creativity and the invention and the innovation that was happening back in those days? And so that just intrigues me every time I see it.
1: So you are a businessman. Can you tell me more about Menlo Innovations?
3: Yeah, we started our company back in 2001 at the sort of the explosion of the internet bubble. Uh, The bubble burst. I was a VP of R&D at a public company in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and suddenly I was out of work. And I had done something kind of interesting the previous couple of years, and uh, it was very informative for where, where I wanted to go forward from there. So while I lost my job and my paycheck and my title and my position, my authority, They couldn't take away what I had learned those previous two years, and we literally built a business around uh, some radically new approaches to doing software design and development, which is what we do for a living, and named it after that Edison-Menlo Park, New Jersey lab. We called it Menlo Innovations.
1: Nice. I first encountered you at TEDx Detroit and I accosted you after your presentation because I was so impressed with what you had to say and your message of joy um, and hope especially for Detroit and um, I subsequently read your book Joy Inc. and went to visit you at your office and um, as you know I'm really interested in workplace culture. I have a program that I work on called Joyful Museums where I try to make workplace culture better for museum people. And um, I would love to hear your just synopsis of what Joy Inc. is about, and then maybe we can talk about how those ideas and concepts apply to museums.
3: Yeah, in some ways, our company has become a bit of a living museum. We have tour guests from all over the world. You were one of those one year. Uh, We had almost 4,000 people come to visit us last year alone from all over the planet, And I believe what they're coming to see is what does it take to build an intentionally joyful culture, especially in the software industry? I mean, a lot of people will read Fast Company or Forbes or uh, some of the high-tech magazines or blogs and, and think, oh, that's the industry to be in. That's a great industry. But for those of us who live inside of it, it's often a death march culture. Uh, there are a lot of failures in the industry and big failures, not little ones that lead to creativity and imagination and learning, but big ones that cause people to lose their jobs and become disillusioned. Quite frankly, that's where I was. And I knew there was a better way of doing things than was customary. And uh, that was essentially the the key ingredient inside of building the company as people kept coming to see what it was we had created the world almost started demanding i write a book about this and when i thought about what i wanted to call the book i i reflected on part of our mission statement where we said our our goal since our inception was to return joy to one of the most unique endeavors mankind has ever undertaken the invention of software And so when I thought about what kind of culture we were were we trying to create, I thought of the word joy, and joy but in a business context, joy that produces business value, and thinking about what is it in particular that software engineers and engineers in general and inventors in general are trying to do for the world, and what they're really trying to do is delight other people with the work of their hearts, their hands, and their minds. And that's probably still what I get so excited about when I go visit museums that are highlighting, particularly inventors. That's kind of my bent on this sort of thing. Because I wonder, what problems were they facing, those inventors? How did they conceive of whatever it was they were trying to create? How did they work through all the difficulties? What experiments did they run and which ones failed? And how did it finally get from that idea to something that actually changed the world? And to me, um, you know, all the way to modern times of people like Steve Jobs, I'm just fascinated with those kind of stories.
1: I just I love the fact that you can talk about all these emotions in a workplace setting in a business with like a straight face and like it's not even a big deal. I mean, everything you said is really just kind of spot on. And another thing that we talk a lot about in museums is how businesses and museums, nonprofits are different, but they should also be the same. What do you think are the biggest lessons museums could take from for-profit businesses and apply to their work?
3: Well, I'm going to look at my inner engineer when I think about this, because I think the in some ways, I can imagine the challenge of museums, and I'm just going to conjecture about it, can be the same as the challenge of engineering. Uh, I'm going to presume that at one level, uh, there is a desire for the people running the museum to be, for lack of a better way to describe it, perfectly accurate, uh, whereas engineers want to you know, always engineer things to perfection. They want everything to be perfect. And in fact, um, to make things relevant, to to appeal, uh, the perfection pursuit may get in the way. Hmm. And I don't mean you should lie. I don't mean you should just make stuff up. But in fact, storytelling is just as important in business as it is in museums. In many ways, the stories have to be relevant. The stories have to be updated to make sense for the people of the time. Uh, I find it fascinating, and I don't know this history, so I'm going to go out on a limb here. But I understand from the Jewish tradition that there was a fight uh, thousands of years ago about writing down the Torah. It, it, it's a certain point where these stories, the, the, the elders decided, we're going to write these things down to preserve them for all time. But the wise elders said, don't do it. Because if you write them down, it will start to pull the humanity out of the stories. It will start keeping them up to date and keeping them relevant. So obviously the, the writers won and, and you know they write down that history. But if you think of a lot of historical texts, uh, whether you know religious or not, uh, I think the way they were written uh, may be technically accurate, but get in the way of what learning, what, what are we trying to teach, what are we trying to deliver to the world. And even this is why, for example, uh, we combined anthropology with software engineering, because we knew that the software we're building, while it has to be solid and work really well, it also has to work for the people it's trying to serve. And that's where our anthropologists come in. Go study the people you're trying to serve. And I think it would probably, um, uh, the idea of applying anthropological pursuit to, um, museums might be a really good idea. Uh, Obviously, there's a lot of archaeology that goes into museums, but the idea of studying the people you're aiming to serve, what are they trying to get out of a museum visit? What is it that makes them excited about coming, rather than just the people who work there? I think those are things that would be good lessons to take away. Mm
1: -hmm. In a word, or a couple of words, what value do museums provide to society?
3: When Henry Ford created the Greenfield Village, he He created it to inspire and particularly the young and I will tell you that worked for me Uh, in in many ways what what I ended up creating was so reminiscent of those childhood experiences that were delivered to me by a museum that I had hung on to my entire adult life and at 43 years old I was still remembering the impact of an eight-year-old and so I think that's probably one of the key things is to inspire
1: has Henry Ford asked you to do fundraising for them? (laughs) (laughs) If not, why not friends?
3: (laughs) Well, you know, they may be within earshot of this. Uh, I, I certainly, um, you know, they are good friends there and we have, I guess in some ways they have because they run a maker fair there every year and they've involved us in that. And, um, Uh, You know, that's another way to make it relevant, right? Uh, Take the old inventors and bring the new inventors and put them in the context of the old inventions. Again, uh, if you go to a Maker Faire like you see there, it's filled with young people. Kids just yearning with curiosity, wanting to do things. And, uh, yeah, so I will continue to support them, talk about them. It's just an amazing place.
1: You hail from the detroit area and detroit is such an interesting place for many reasons and one being that um it's gone it's had its struggles and on the podcast we've discussed how some industrial cities have to come around and how do you use culture to do that and detroit has amazing resources the dia the historical society there Poabic pottery just so many wonderful, wonderful things um what future do you see for the arts in detroit
3: as you say, Detroit has such a rich history. There was a time where it was called the Paris of the Midwest. It was it was the Silicon Valley of the early 1900s. That's where all the inventions were going on. We haven't lost that history. Uh, it is still a place where uh, we know how to make stuff, uh, whether it's out of metal or, or pottery and that sort of thing. And obviously, it was also a big in the music industry for a considerable amount of time and quite frankly still is. And so I think when you have that sort of um, Diego Rivera kind of uh, brute force and brawn of people working uh, hard to make things, bumping up against a a culture of creativity and invention and innovation, uh, I think always good things will be happening there, good times or bad
1: Well, Rich, it's a delight to speak with you. I'm such a fan. Um, I know all of our museum listeners are going to run out and buy the book, of course, and I highly recommend it. Um, What message, parting message, do you have to inspire our museum workers?
3: never give up uh always uh pursue your dreams find the thing that makes your heart sing uh and remind yourself why you got into the profession you did in the first place go back and find your inner eight-year-old and and remember what it was that brought you joy when you were that young because quite frankly it's probably the thing that's still burning inside of you today thanks rich (laughs) thank you (laughs)
1: interesting guy. So um, what can I tell you about him?
2: What kind of business is it that he does?
1: So in his book, um, he talks about a few things that he does. And also, if you're in Ann Arbor, he gives tours. And that's hmm. what um, – so my husband and some friends of ours went and took a tour of his space. And just it, – it, it's
2: – Is it like a brewery tour? Do you get a sample afterward or something? <laughs> I
1: wish. So uh, you walk in, and it's just one giant room. And there are no offices – There are tables and desks with computers on them, and they are on wheels. Hmm. And they move them around as needed in in the office space. And Rich is president of the company. He's the head honcho. He sits with everyone else. Hmm. There is no side office. Hmm. There's nothing like that. They do have a side room that is totally pimped out for new moms. (laughs) Really? And one beautiful thing that is a policy of his... um, is that new moms uh, can bring their kids to work. It's like bringing your dog to work except mm. you could bring your baby. And they right. have lots of space and noise isn't an issue and then it, it's like a village raising the kid. Right. And how great would it be you're having just kind of maybe not a great day. You get some baby time. You just put that baby mm. on strap on that front pack. So
2: they don't have any formal daycare which is sort of no. an innovation in a lot of companies.
1: Right. The baby is just so there. And uh, they found that it works really well. Hmm. So I love that, for one. Um, It's funny to think of the the no offices, because many of us are in crazy, weird old buildings or historic houses, et cetera, and just by the nature of the work, you're in someone's former bedroom, often a bathroom, just like totally Hmm. weird spaces. Um, So I'm not sure how we could adopt that, but that's something to think about. Um, Another interesting thing that they do is he works by the rule of, if you have an important job, you have... Two people working on it together at all times. Hmm. So for writing code, you have two people and they work on it together. And a lot of people would say, well, you're, you're wasting hmm. you know, two people working on the same thing. It's a waste of energy, a waste of time. But he says no. And like all very important, life-saving, important jobs, like flying an airplane or being in a police car, right. you have two people together. Yeah. And he's found that you know, he's done the research and it works better.
2: Creativity and Yeah exactly Exactly
1: And you get to know Everyone in the company Because hmm. you're totally Mixed up all the time And I think about this In museums right You don't You, you can't like A visitor services person Can't work with the fundraiser Or can they I don't right. know I've often thought Wouldn't it be great I've worked in a lot Of small places But when I was in a Mid-sized place Wouldn't it be great If new people When they came in Were assigned a mentor for a couple of weeks or for mm-hmm. a month. And then you just sort of shadow that person and you go out to lunch or whatever, break down some barriers, get a new person who's your mentor or your partner and work on some things together. You'd really cross-pollinate ideas, really understand each other better. I don't know, I think there's some opportunities there.
2: The one thing that I really appreciate about Rich is this idea that he is not a museum professional, but he is clearly very, very passionate about museums. And I love his statement that we need to channel our inner eight-year-old so that we can really be in touch with uh, what really moves us as museum professionals. Yeah, that that is really spot-on wisdom from somebody that's outside of our field. But to indicate that the primary value of a museum is its inspirational quality, that's something that I think we all feel, and it's not something that we always articulate.
1: Yeah, and I think we need people from the outside to tell us and reinforce it so we're not just telling ourselves the same story. I think this is important to remember when we're looking for board members for our organizations, right? There are people in your community who you may not think about, um, but they could have had these great experiences and secretly deep down love museums and care about them and want to find a way to connect with their inner eight-year-old, and they would be great advocates for your museum. Hmm. What else was interesting to you about about rich what came up
2: have you ever been to greenfield village i have yeah what'd you yeah. think i loved it right
1: it's totally my kind of it's totally my jam
2: Right.
1: i loved all those buildings together i thought it was a little weird sometimes how um historic places are removed from their original locations and brought to this other place and created this weird Recreated historical Wonderland, mm. um, but on the other hand, I dig it because I love historical wonderlands. Yeah. Um, but every time I go, uh, I just I see something different. I learn something different. They have they have a Greenfield Village. They have um, one of those taverns where you can yeah, right. go and get historical drinks and whatnot. And so I had some of those. and They were gross. But that was important to learn <laughs> and to experience um, right. and very fun. But uh, we went to Thomas Edison's right. um, building. Lab, right. yeah, And it was just...
2: I remember that well.
1: Oh, yeah, I remember
2: it well. I remember seeing the lab tables where he allegedly took all of his naps. And I thought, gee, that's kind of an interesting... He'd yes. take these 15-minute cat naps throughout Absolutely. the day. He didn't sleep. The typical going yeah. to bed usually when he was hot on a project. But that was very uh, exciting for me when you think about being onto something when you th- you're tracking down uh some kind of a problem that actually you don 't know it at the time but it 's going to really transform mm-hmm. history, the disruptive event yeah uh, type of thing and um and you 're just so excited about it you' just you 're laying on the table you 're taking little naps and then you 're waking up again charged up in the middle of the night with your trusty crew I thought yeah. that was, you know, it was very romantic it was totally great and, yeah.
1: and just to think about how he was innovative about workplace culture which is the thing that I think about and he had an organ yeah. and they would drink beer and right. you know and they would, he just created this environment for them that just totally incubated their ideas mm. and he, he set the stage and he just you know hired smart people and he just let them do their thing um, and, and of course, being in there and walking up those steps and seeing that space, you have to imagine all that. Right. And this is what we struggle with, right, in historic places where you want to bring it to life, but you want to preserve it. Right. And so how do you – you can't have, a, like, a reenactor there all the time, and you yourself can't wander around and manhandle all the artifacts, but – How do you strike that balance?
2: Well, i got to tell you, there's something that is really, truly magical. When you walk into a space, though, like that, like Edison's lab, and you literally are treading the same boards that he did, and you feel the grooves, and you can, you know, it's a question of awareness. And some Mm -hmm. people have it, and some people don't. It's like your historical imagination. You know, you walk in, and you don't need a lot of intermediation of labels and interpreters and whatever. You just walk in, and you breathe the Mm -hmm. air. And I'm sure that's what happened to Rich.
1: Right. Have you had that experience? Oh, at a place? all the time. Do you? I do it
2: all the time. Really? I really do. Whether or not I know the backstory, I just I can walk into a place and I just appreciate the smells, and I appreciate the you know the grooves in the wood and the you know this and that and uh, it. It's uh, it's something they're they're very transformative every single time and we use that word transformative like oh geez you only have one transformational moment right. in your life right? right no that's not true it's like okay. you go in and it's like you're completely turned around maybe because you had an expectation of something that was going to happen and it turned out to be like better than you thought it was going to be and hmm. that's
1: you know that's pretty cool I felt that way at Ellis Island mm. that was the hall at Ellis Island was one place I walked in and I like started crying. Hmm. It was, it was incredible. So I'm curious if, if our, if our fair listeners have had an experience like that, please um, let us know. Hashtag at museum people or email us, et cetera. It's, it's, it's something that we should talk about and celebrate.
2: One of the phrases he used uh, regarding the high tech business is he said that it's a death march culture very frequently And that uh, he noticed that, and he was saying that in the context of it's like either boom or bust or successes and failures. And a lot of times people walk around their offices very closed down, very emotionally closed up because it's just like the shoe's going to drop at some point. And that's, I think, what inspired him to really seek this joyful culture Mm -hmm. to try to instill a, a much brighter kind of day-to-day work life because life is too short.
1: Also, it's the whole life. And we heard from Laura a lot. It's not a work-life balance. It's a work-life integration. And so he's recognizing that people have kids and they want to be near their kids or they have schedule whatever so and also people want to feel connected to other people even though they're software engineers you know there's no right. stereotype there but they want to work with other people and be connected and do a good job so he's he, basically he's listening he's yeah. listening to his people he's seeing what works and he's changing and innovating and th- there's nothing in that equation that museums can't try
2: right well it goes to show you you can teach management but you can't teach leadership 100 that's, that's the thing you can give pointers about what leadership might be in a particular context but it's like a snowflake his thing is different you know from other charismatic leaders and it works for him so good for good for Rich
1: yeah I had such a fun time interviewing Rich and uh, we're looking for more people that work um, outside the museum field but have been Um, influenced by museum work. So if any of our listeners have ideas, please send them to us. Hashtag museum people. You know how to get a hold of us.
2: Yeah, website, nemanet.org slash museum people. There's a form there for you to fill out suggestions and and the like.
1: Dan, there's another thing that I want to say to our listeners, which is, um, as you know and have noticed, we don't have advertisers on this podcast. If that's a thing that you appreciate, I ask you to consider making a donation to NEMA.
2: Oh, Well, thank you. That was unsolicited for me, anyway.
1: (laughs) NEMA is a cause that I personally believe in and that I give to um, outside of my membership dues. And I encourage all the listeners here to do the same. You can go to NEMA's website, easily just give online. Um, You could probably write in a check if you wanted. Mm, And um, you could even, like, slip us a fiver when you see us next.
2: Maybe we'll buy some more microphones. (laughs) Thank you, museum people. It's awesome. Go find that inner eight-year-old, as Rich Sheridan and said.
1: Enjoy your summer vacation.
2: <laughs> Bye. Bye. Next time on Museum People. We're going to talk about the National Park Service, and specifically the 100th anniversary.
0: Woo-hoo! Hashtag find your park. Yeah. And, and they were not just
1: widgets in this big system, but they, they were pushing back at times. Mm. I did not wear a uniform, and that was Awesome. Because his uniforms are terrible.
2: How do you look in the hat?
1: I think there's maybe one photo that exists that my mom took.
2: Oh, we have to get that. We're going to put that on the Museum People website. Mom, web hide it.
0: Hide it. Museum People is a production of the New England Museum Association, which connects, inspires, and empowers cultural institutions to provide their communities with deep and authentic experiences. Have an idea or comment for Museum People? Go to nemanet.org/museumpeople to provide feedback, get information about episodes, and learn how to subscribe. Thanks for listening.